Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. Glad to have you with us. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Katie McKellar, reporter with the Deseret News, Derek Brown, former chair of the Utah Republican Party, and Scott Howell, former Democratic member of the Utah State Senate. Thank you so much for being with us today. Election week. I know we all love it. You know, I'm trying to be sure everyone loves it as much as we do on election day, but it's very interesting to see what's happened in Utah. We had a lot of municipal races uh, that we were following. Uh, a couple themes I want to get into, uh, ranked choice voting, for example, and kind of kind of talk about that, Derek. Let's, let's launch into maybe the biggest test case of ranked choice exactly. voting was Sandy City. Yes, it was. Uh, maybe, maybe take a second just for our viewers to make sure we understand exactly what ranked choice voting is, how it works, and let's talk about some of the results. Well, I actually used it last year. It was the first, I think, large-scale use for the Republican convention, the state convention. And it was very practical because the way that you normally vote in things like that is you have multiple rounds of voting. Somebody votes, you eliminate the one who gets the lowest, lowest votes, and you keep doing it over and over and over. And in a pandemic, it wasn't practical in, for instance, the first congressional district to have, you know, 10 or 11 rounds. So we used ranked choice voting and the legislature's now given cities the right to do the same thing where you can choose who's your first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice. And generally who your fourth, fifth or sixth choice is doesn't matter, except I think in cities like Sandy, it actually mattered. So yeah. this is a kind of a grand experiment here in Utah. Right, so that, that just for the sake of thoroughness, so that eighth place person, if that, that person of course is not going to advance, so you take that person's second choice and those go and get added to the tally until, uh, until you get to, to someone that has over 50%. And it's interesting, Scott, uh, it, it was eight rounds in Sandy that it took, and we're, we're close to that winner there as well. But one of the arguments is that this tends to, on both sides of the aisle, this, this form of voting may tend to moderate the candidates that finally emerge as the victor. That's a good thing. That's what we want. We don't need the extreme left or right. And I think the best example of that where you see ranked choice voting uh, was in Midville with the mayor there. Uh, the guy who was behind, uh, Marcus Stevens, after the second round popped w way up in front of the, uh, the incumbent mayor. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's here to stay. I think ranked choice voting makes a lot of sense because if you can't get your first choice, you go for your second. And where, where else it was important, Salt Lake City Council race. Victoria, uh, you saw her uh, pop up high uh, against uh, her opponent, and uh, Alejandro Peo, he, he, he got more votes than anybody on the second round. So it was amazing how that works. Uh -huh. do, do you think, uh, is this, are, are you representative of this? Is this really sort of a bipartisan approach now? Democrats are using it more, Republicans are as well. Is that, is that, is that generally the case? Are we going to see that going forward? I think so. I, I don't, well, it, it's going to be mixed. I think it'll be interesting to see kind of the postmortem from a lot of the candidates because, I mean, one of the problems, I spoke with a number of candidates in Sandy and a number of those mayoral candidates, one of the complaints they had was it's almost impossible to raise money because if you have nine candidates, you know, the question mm -hmm. is who's going to win? And in Sandy, it really, it seemed like it was completely up. And of the nine candidates, 
five or six of them could have won. And so as a consequence, instead of having two candidates where, where the donations come into yeah. one or the other, it's really hard to raise money when it could be any. So that may be an issue that, yeah, that some of the candidates who don't win take into consideration uh -huh. next time. Katie, what was one of the interesting aspects of this is how this uh, plays for incumbents. All right, when you see you have a long list of, of, of names and sometimes this is the chance for people who don't have name ID, but you wrote a great article this week about, about some of incumbents and some of them weren't even necessarily safe inside the state of Utah. No, they're, they're not. And there's quite a big list of incumbents. One of the biggest ones I think that was interesting was Park City Mayor Andy Bierman. Um, he, you know, was behind uh, councilman, councilwoman had 60% of the vote. That's definitely an upset. Um, and so we definitely saw also in Cedar City, that was an interesting one. Um, you know, Mayor Maylie Wilson was losing. Um, Bountiful, uh, Randy Lewis, uh, losing to Councilwoman Kendallin Harris. So we saw quite a bit of examples of incumbents, you know, not necessarily safe this election. You know, there's one that I, was really interesting to me, it's in Parowan. By golly, vote for Molly. A yeah. write-in candidate. By golly, vote for Molly. And she won. I mean, and she beat the incumbent down there. So for me, it, it's, I, I think ranked choice is here to stay. And it just goes to show that even a writing candidate who, who's willing to go out and do the work can win. So I, I think on the financials, Derek brought up an interesting point. But you, when you look at it, Jim Bennett raised more money than almost all. It's in Sandy. Yeah, in Sandy. And uh, Monica was way down there. And again, I think ranked choice voting makes a, a difference. Yeah. So Derek, 23 cities. Yep, participated in ranked choice voting. So it's one thing. So these municipal elections, we got a little view of it. So what do you, so next year is going to be a bigger test. Well, and that's that's I think a lot of the problems that people might uh, or complaints they might have about the municipals may not play into the, the the partisan races. I mean, we saw ranked choice voting in the state of Virginia in the primary for the Republicans. And so the person who emerged from that ranked choice voting tended to be, I think, the candidate most likely to beat McAuliffe. So this is Glenn Youngkin, was yes. a product of ranked choice voting in Virginia. Maybe it gets to that idea about yeah. the kind of candidate that emerged. Uh, Scott, uh, any any take-home lessons that you are looking, maybe through the lens of your, you know, your, your former uh, minority party leadership in the state uh, of Utah, any lessons that you are taking from that race in Virginia uh, for governor? Oh, man, there are so many lessons. Yeah. There are so many great lessons. I think first and foremost is that uh, Yankin, he ran a campaign to do away with sales tax, to get parents more involved in education, everything a Democrat would vote for him. I mean, that's, to me, it's like, hello, and then Terry McAuliffe makes the biggest error in the history of debates when he says, well, well, guess what? Parents shouldn't be involved in their kids' education. Are you kidding me? Talk about the mama bear coming out of the cave. Uh -huh. I mean, to me, the wonkiness has got to go. Now, I, I look at Virginia, but I look at Long Island, I look at uh, Minneapolis, and Seattle. Seattle elected a mayor that says, I'm done and fed up with homelessness. I am angry about what's happening with defunding the police. And for Democrats, wake up. Get out of this wonkiness. James Carville said it best. Go to a detox of wonkiness and end that. Because you know what? If we don't, 
we're going to be losers. We're going to lose. And it's just that simple. Uh -huh. Katie, a couple of really interesting questions here. Uh, you're interviewing lots of people around the state, and, and, and Scott just kind of got to some of those core issues. Uh, the education side in particular. Sure. I mean, Democrats own this one for yeah. a very long time. Yeah. And this seemed to be uh, his key platform here. Uh, when you're talking to people around the state of Utah, do you think that is going to be a, a, an issue that goes into this next election that I'll, I'll just say Republicans in the state of Utah are going to try to really attach to, to their campaigns? Definitely. I mean, uh, in education, everyone cares about it, especially here in Utah. Um, and I think we kind of see that becoming more political. I think critical race theory is the more extreme example of that. But for sure, we're seeing education become more political. Um, and, it, and it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's about the kids, right? Any, anytime you can bring the kids in. So for sure, it's, it's an issue that everyone seems to care about. Well, Katie's hitting some of these tough ones. I mean, she's right on about this, right, Derek? So this is, you know, this next election cycle, whether it's critical race theory, it's masks, it's kids in school. Uh, these, are, these are going to be coming up during this next election cycle. And it seemed to be one of the fundamental aspects of this campaign in Virginia. Exactly. And I think one of the other interesting things is looking sort of at the Biden agenda and how that played in as well. And I think to some degree, and I know Republicans are, are wanting to show that this is a referendum on that agenda and they're anxious to do that. But I think there is some truth to that. And, and the other thing that he was, that Youngkin was able to do is there were competing voices within his own party. There was a group on the far right that really didn't appreciate him. It was sort of the more, you know, Trump-leaning Republicans. And what he was able to do was to bring them all together and, and manage that victory, because if they had splintered, he would never have won. And so I think that's the other thing that he's done is kind of set out a blueprint for how Republicans run with that sort of Trump okay. cloud hanging so, over so them. So, Derek, if you'll hit this one and, and then Scott on that side, too, because the, the Trump factor and the Biden factor, I mean, this is this is maybe you're going to tell our elected officials how to win next time. All right. <laughs> from what you're doing right here. So how does the Republican do they take some lessons from Virginia and say this is how you run as a Republican? And I'm curious how the Democrats will take that also. Well, and I think what, one of the things and, and this from my 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 work in the state Republican Party, we have these differing factions. I had one um, one person in the media who once said to me, Derek, he, I feel like there's about six political parties in the state of Utah, and you're the chair of five of them. Mm -hmm. And he was joking, but only <laughs> half joking. And part of that is because you do have these different factions. So what you need to do, and particularly Republicans, is to coalesce and to bring people together. I think that's what Youngkin was able to do, is he was able to reach out to those on the, 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 the Trump side of things. And in Utah, I think the answer will be, how does the sort of Mitt Romney and Mike Lee voters come together? And I think any candidate who can bring both of them together has a recipe for victory next year. Mm -hmm. Will there be a big Trump factor in that, in that analysis, or just like what you saw there? Probably. Like, pr there probably will be. I mean, that's what it looks like at this point. Okay. I don't think it's going away. The, on the other side of the aisle. Uh, Derek Spardon and, and what his analysis of that is. Look, <clears throat> Terry, I've known Terry McCullough for a long time. He was out bashing Youngkin and, and tying Trump into him all the time. Youngkin did never, ever, ever say once, Biden, look at, look at McCullough, he's a Biden person. He just, he, he didn't play that card. He, Youngkin was amazing. He ran in the shadows of Trump without ever letting that shadow even have a, a, a voice or anything. 
And for Democrats, big lesson here. It, and I'm going to go back to this wonkiness. It goes back to that whole thing about you can't be this progressive to say we're going to do this and this and this, and especially on education. You want a playbook to win. You go out there and you tell parents and you tell uh, students that they're the most important thing and we're going to work on funding education. A and again, Youngkin says, I'm doing away with the sales tax on food. That's a, that's a democratic issue. It's always been that one. And, and he gets elected. And you know what? He's an impressive guy. Uh, he's got tight ties with Romney. He raised 75 grand for him during the uh, presidential campaign. He's smart. And I think he's going to be a moderate within the Republican Party. I think he's going to bring it back to the Republicans I love to deal with that weren't f so extremists. And, and, and same with the Democrats. You cannot be out there putting this pro progressive socialist agenda and think that people like that. There's a narrow, narrow group of individuals within that Democratic Party that do it, but they have a loud voice, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's going to be sad. Hey, K Katie, uh, you do such great political reporting, so you are asking these elected officials these very questions. What is your sense of how they answer that question? How, when they answer your questions, which are tough, I know, how are they trying to walk that line in those interviews? The walk the line of between yeah, what, what the Trump, Trump yeah the Trump the Trump the Trump aspect yes you know I, I think it's it's kind of tough and I think everyone's still trying to find their way through how to navigate uh, the next election season I think it'll be really interesting it, it might might really depend on the candidate and how they identify um, and so what we're it'll it'll be kind of up to them to see is this uh, is Trump someone that I identify with, that my uh, constituents identify with and really continue to value? Or are they gonna take a more moderate, moderate approach and try to keep them at arm's length? I think it's really going to depend on the candidate. Yeah, it will be very specific. Uh, so um, I'll tell you a uh, no less controversial issue. Uh, I wanted to get to the state's response to uh, President Biden's uh, COVID vaccination requirements. So the rules came out this week, and the whole state of Utah is talking about how this is going to be implemented. Uh, uh, Scott, if you'll take a second, talk about how, how that just went in, into play and a little about Utah's response so far. Well, uh, the Biden administration found an old uh, rule in OSHA where they were able to go in and say we can mandate through a public health initiative to make businesses over a certain amount of employees. It's 100 employees. 100, yes. Yeah, and ha make sure that they're uh, vaccinated. Um, their Utah response was Utah response. We're going to sue the Biden administration. I think uh, Senator Lee's write, written 19 different memos to the president calling barbarism. Barbarism, yes. Barbarism. Uh, you know, the whole discussion to me is so insane and so silly. Just go get jabbed, get the shot. <laughs> and you know what? We'll end COVID, it'll be gone. Let's just all have a practical viewpoint of this. You know, uh, people said, oh, you get the shot, Bill Gates is gonna take over. I want Warren <laughs> Buffett to take over, so he'll <laughs> tell me when to sell and buy. But I think it's a silly argument, I really do. 68% of the businesses in Utah, by the way, have 100 people plus. Out of that, it's estimated that more than half of them have already mandated shots. Well, well Derek, that was hey, the, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I, and, and I take slightly a different approach. I mean, I, I think the, the the issue is not just right now; it's looking down the road. I mean, what Biden's doing. Uh, well, part of the part of the thing that Senator Lee has been concerned about is what are the limits of federal government? Mm -hmm. I mean, can they if they can force you to take a medical procedure, what else can they force you to do? And I think that's really the concern that a lot of our state legislators have, and we'll see this in a special session. We'll see the response, and that's what the lawsuits are about: is really okay if if they can do this. 
what else can they do? If they can say that, you know, effectively two-thirds of the state of Utah has to undergo a medical procedure, whether they want to or not, you know, a year from now, what can they do? And I think that's the question that everyone's really asking. I think it's less about the vaccine mandates and more about the concept of where do mandates end? I mean, a mandate is you'll do this or else. And mm -hmm. so it's not surprising that our legislature says, hang on, let us have some autonomy here. Yeah, Katie, let's get to what the legislator is saying and what they're telling you also. And I want to read, uh, it was a statement that just, just came out in response to uh, the rules going to effect. This is President Stuart Adams, President of Senate, Speaker Brad Wilson, Attorney General Sean Reyes, and also the state auditor, uh, John Dougal, all together in this statement. And it does get to what, what Scott and Derek were just talking about, Katie. Uh, this is what they said. The mandate the Biden administration issued is a blatant attempt to exceed well-established limitations on federal authority and infringes upon the rights of private businesses and employers. Biden continues to be tone deaf to the majority of Americans who oppose mandates. Tell us about this, this quote in the context of what they're discussing, which is the business reaction to the mandate for them. Yeah, I mean, so the next steps for the Utah legislature, I talked with Senate President um, Adams yesterday and so while that lawsuit plays out, they want to clarify that there will be business exemptions um, or exemptions for employees. So like religious, medical or personal exemptions. And uh, Adam said he wants to see that exemption also for Utahns who've already caught COVID and recovered like quote unquote na natural immunity. And so um, I think we're, we'll have to see they're, they're negotiating with Governor Cox to get that on the agenda. Um, that special session is for, expected for Tuesday. I think we can expect to see Governor Cox issue uh, that call today. Um, we'll have to see what's on the agenda, but um, that's what they want to tackle. Mm -hmm. So, Derek, this is an interesting preview. I want to hear what you, what's what's coming on this, because, so, of course, that third category, the personal belief exemption, exists in our Utah statutes after the last yeah. legislation, but this is not does not exist in the federal law or the requirements that just came out. It doesn't, and so I think that's one of the things they're going to tackle. And, and if you look at that statement that you read, um, you'll notice it doesn't say anything about vaccinations. The focus is mandates. Mm -hmm. And, again, that goes back to the, the idea that what when they said Biden's tone deaf, um, on issues like, for instance, federal land issues. I mean, we have a, a state where our federal delegation, our state legislature, I mean, almost every elected official in the state said, look, work with us on the federal lands issue. On the, and the Biden administration said, no, we don't really care. And they're saying the same thing here. Look, we're doing a good job. If you compare Utah with other states, we're doing a great job. And so I think really what this comes down to is just this idea that we have a Utah way of doing things. We're clearly, if you look at numbers in terms of um, infections and unemployment and economic growth, we're doing really well. And for the administration to say, yes, but we're gonna implement this one size fits all program and you have no say. I mean, I mean, it's I mean, personally, I have I have problems with that that have nothing to do with the vaccination issue. And so that's what you're going to see next week. And the, the question is, do these exemptions, can they swallow the overall rule? I mean, that's really that I, if I were the Biden administration, that would be my concern with that. But I think I think that's the debate we're going to see next week. Tell, tell us what comes next with the, the with the administration, Scott, because uh, th this is this is 100 
percent ahead, uh, and depending on the state's going to try to do a few things. But you're very connected to the business community also. What is their general feeling about this this mandate that's coming down? Are they because they're largely doing it, as you said, they're doing already. it already and they're engaging in it. And, you know, any of their employees that say for religious re re reason and they're a member of the dominant religion here in the state of Utah, the church has said, no, you we, are not going to give those religious exemptions. And so I think for me, I, I just go back to the point. Uh, but Derek makes a good point about federal mandates. Where does it end and where does we stop? But on this one, it just seems to me like it's a health issue that we could end COVID. We could just put it to bed and, and get over it. But I, there are concerns and you have to listen to the constituency and you have to listen, you know, what, what are they going to do next in terms of a federal mandate? But I think most of the employers in the state of Utah recognize that um, we, we, we just need to get the, the jab and then just end COVID and move on. Uh, Apart from what the legislature does uh, in terms of their powers with legislation, Katie, just a, a small glimpse of some of the lawsuits that are coming from the state of Utah, because Scott mentioned it, they, they came pretty quickly, are coming quickly. Lawsuits related to the, uh, ma the mandate. Yes. Yes, yes, correct. So, yeah, so maybe have a little delay on the on the sound there. But but yes, so we had several elected officials that are already saying the lawsuit is coming and the attorney general for the state of Utah, Sean Reyes, has already right. said we're already filing a lawsuit. Right. All right. We, we have them lined up in yeah. the queue right now. I mean, they'll, they'll be there. And we also have uh, federal, uh, I mean, the lawsuits against the, the land, uh, what they're doing down at Bears Ears. So just kind of line up. I mean, it, it's Utah. But if uh, they just work with us, I think that's the, well, the message. That's if they the, would just say, look, what, what, what works, because on a state-by-state -state approach, I mean, if you compare Florida with California, I mean, I just returned from Florida last night. Florida has the lowest infection rates in the country right now. Now, they didn't a, a month ago, but so it's very different from California, but their approaches are different. I just wish the federal government would, would sort of give the autonomy to the states to let them work out these issues. And the states that are just excelling, well, Derek yeah, makes a really good them. point on Bears Ears. It was, it was silly not to engage with Representative Curtis. John has got a good plan, and he's had one in, in the pipeline for a long time. But for the Biden administration, not even to reach out to him, and I got involved in that. I called and I said, you, you really need to do this. And it was like this attitude of, oh, you know, we know what we're going to do. But Clinton did the same thing. Clinton did the same thing when he announced the, the monument. Uh, uh, Bill Orton and I were in different meetings and we got the call from the White House and we were shocked. And so I don't know what this mentality is. I don't think it's exclusive to the Democratic Party or administrations. I think it's happened in both sides. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, one more thing that's going to happen, uh, Katie, next week when the special session comes is redistricting. All right. So what are you hearing? Yeah. Uh, so, are some are speculating this could be like two weeks? Is it going to take that long? What are you hearing? Oh, I hope not. I'm going to be the one listening. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did talk with uh, Representative Paul Ray yesterday um, to ask him about the status of the maps, um, about the Legislative Committee's maps. Uh, and he said he wants to see um, a, some of those come out today. Uh, we'll, we'll see uh, when they actually come out. But the hope was to get uh, give the public some time to look at the legislative committee's maps before the special session on Tuesday next week. Mm -hmm. So redistricting will be a big topic. Also, if the, you know, the VAX uh, mandate ends up on the agenda, I think we can expect uh, the Dixie name change to um, come to a head uh, after that recommendation from the Board of Education. 
And so it'll be a busy special wow. session. This could be a fun couple <laughs> weeks. Put the special in the special <laughs> session, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, Derek, Derek, what are you hearing about these maps? So we've, we've seen the maps from the Independent Redistricting Commission. Uh, we may very soon get to see some of the maps from the Legislative Committee. Exactly. And, and honestly, I think the reality is the independent commission, I mean, they've created their maps. I don't think the legislature's gonna go that direction. I think the, the reality is that commission, I mean, to the extent they're independent, and, and I'll, I'll sort of show my colors here, but I think they're independent of accountability. I mean, the difference is we're talking about legislators who have to cast a vote. I mean, these maps, I think people don't sometimes realize that, that the maps that pass actually have to be voted for. So there's an accountability. If you're a legislator, you vote for these maps. I was in the legislature 10 years ago when we had other maps. There were maps I voted for and maps I voted against, and there were different reasons. And so I think you've got to get a map that crosses the finish line. And the independent commission, we sort of all thought all along, they would just take kind of the primary Democrat areas of the state, put them into one map and create a Democrat district. And we sort of joked about it, and that's exactly what they did. So I don't. I think don't expect to see the legislature take those maps and pass them. At least when it comes to the congressional maps. Mm -hmm. Scott is a former legislator. He may, <laughs> he may disagree with me on yeah. that. No, <laughs> I, I think that's great. And uh, I'll never forget in, in Mr. Patton's class at Skyline High School, I learned a word called gerrymandering, and we had to spell it and we had to give the definition. I never thought I'd live it. Uh, I I'm a product of um, being gerrymandered out of my seat. My best advice is he who has the power and the gold, they rule. And the legislature's got it. And thank you to Better Boundaries and thank you to all those people. My advice is if you're, if you're redistricted out, don't have a pity party, uh, patio party. Go out and campaign if you really want the job because you know what? That's what happens. It happens in California yeah. where the Democrats are in charge and it's going to happen here he in won. Utah. He got redistricted yeah. out. But I, and he campaigned and you won. Yeah, he still yeah. won. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's true. Uh, but That's I was right. fortunate because uh, Senator Rex Black said, get your butt off out of here and go campaign. And uh, it's just a reality of what happens. We hope that it'll be fair and, and have some uh, things that are, are realistic. But look, uh, if you're not on the favorite list of the, of the leadership of the legislature, you're probably going to find a new district. Derek, in our, in our last 30 seconds, can I talk about the favorite list? Because I'm, I'm curious about some names coming back. I don't know All if right? I want to so, so, go there. Okay. <laughs> so are we going to see Ken Ivory coming back, potentially? We, potentially. Maybe, maybe we Bruce see, Cutler coming back? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, we, we could. I think both of them are running. Um, I think one of the two of them may, may come back. We may, may see yeah. them as uh, Judy you know, Weeks and, Romer. That's right. Yeah. I, I, oh, yes. Another just got, yeah. Another one that got appointed. That's right. So you, you'll see that. You know, there's only six Democrats in the Senate. So that, that's, but they could. They could uh, take yeah, two so or three of them. Well, we'll watch some of these names we know from before, some new names we're going to get to know better. Thank you very much for your great comments this evening and insights. It's going to be a busy week. Can't yes. wait to talk more about it. Thank you for having us. Thank and you. Thank you for listening to the Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.